A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Uh, I think that's why a sense of humour exists in human beings, really, is, is to to get you through things, you know. Uh, when something is, is, is traumatic, uh, if, if you can kind of laugh about it, it's, it's letting off steam, almost literally, you know. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport and entertainment, who are here to share their wisdom and their use of humour. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a multi-award winning magician, comedian, actor and writer. Often called the Sultan of Swindle, his street magic TV specials are nothing short of mystifying and mirthful. As a well-known sceptic, this master of the scam has built a career amusing and bemusing in equal measure whilst also exposing the truth behind deceitful and devilish tricks. His performances are as comedic as they are crafty, and he's built an astonishing career through many successful shows on stage and screen. His amazing versatility means that he can play almost anywhere in the world, from the comedy store to the Royal Command performance, and from an aircraft carrier to an opera house. Although he's a master of the scam, we know he'll always shoot us straight. Paul Zenon, welcome to the Humorology Podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Can, can we have that introduction again? I really enjoyed it. <laughs> well, I, I must admit, I could have done about an hour and a half introduction with all the things you've done over your career, but probably the highlight of your career was when we first met, which was in 1986, Paul, doing New Faces, primetime live Saturday night. Oh, now, Dear viewer, can you believe that these two faces were once new? <laughs> Yeah, we. I mean, both of us were were very, very young at the time. Let's let, let's let's oh, be quite on. It was a child bride, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, now I wanted to take you back even further than that and to go uh, back to 
what were you doing and was humour important in your family and in your life when you were a child? Uh, yeah, if I can remember that far back, it's it's, it's certainly in sepia, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I start off being into both comedy and magic. You know, I used to watch uh, people like uh, sort of Two Ronnies, Morgan Wise, and um, Tommy Cooper on the TV, um, and Kenny Everett. I was very into as well. You know, as a teenager, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I, I, as a boy, you generally got for Christmas alternate, alternate years. You got either a magic set or a chemistry set. Um, and funny enough, I went on to kind of study chemistry as well. So I was, I, you know, the combination was blowing things up or making things disappear, you know, one way or the other. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I never really quite like the premise of magic in that it's, you know, it's very easy to be a smart ass with it. You know, you're kind of going, I can do this and you don't know how it's done. I'm smarter than you. So kind of comedy takes the, the edge off that, if you will, you know. Uh, and it's also a very good means of misdirection, you know. So if you want to do a sneaky move, uh, if you do a line or so they laugh and look at each other in the audience or whatever, that's when you do the sneaky move. So it's it's the timing, you know. So the, the rhythm of magic is very similar to the, the rhythm of comedy. You know, it's about uh, the premises. You lead someone down a garden path and at the end there's an unexpected twist, you know. Um, so I, I kind of always combine the two. You know, people always say which came first, but I kind of never did one without the other really early on, you know. Um, but I ended up working in a, um, uh, as a teenager, I worked in a, a magic shop, a, a joke shop, basically, in, in Blackpool. And that was a good training ground because it was kind of, um, you know, the, the combination, again, it's, it's, it's that catch-all word trick, really, you know, so a trick can be uh, a magic trick or a practical joke um, or just deceit in general is what I was interested in. You know, I always used to kind of like um, films, uh, like heist films, things like, uh, or the, the Sting, you know, where it's a clever confidence trick and things like that. So I was always interested in the psychology behind deceit. Um, and but also mixed with the you know five years of selling plastic dog poo and uh, <laughs> uh, exploding cigarettes and all that sort of stuff, um, that was a, a good training ground in how to present um, a, a joke. You know, because people can be, "What have you got? That's funny." Was the standard line. You know, and you, I got tired of explaining that. You know, sort of humour is in the uh, the mind of the beholder, really. You know, but uh, so you instead you just kind of show them the thing, but you're actually presenting it rather than just sort of saying this is a, an exploding matchbox. Uh, you kind of say, well, we've got this thing over here. You just move that out of the way. They pick it up. It will go off. You know, so you you're actually doing a, a routine um, to tell a joke, basically. So five summers of doing that was was a good training ground. You know, um, and meanwhile. I was kind of uh, knocking on doors and offering to do um, shows in the, you know, the B&Bs and guest houses. Well, I'm intrigued by that, that you said knocking on doors and then you were doing all this stuff in the shop. But because you've said to me in the past, I've heard you say you're a fairly shy kid, but you enjoy showing off on stage. And I wondered about that whole idea that performance is the shy person's revenge on the world. Do you think that's true? Um, I think to a certain extent, yeah, I think it's actually more about just um, getting that attention that you secretly crave. Um, uh, but by by doing it uh, as, a, as a performance, by playing a character, basically. So rather than being yourself in your own situation, you're putting yourself in an artificial world, playing a, a somewhat artificial character. So it, it's an acting game, really, you know. I mean, there's a, there's a famous quote from uh, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, 
who was uh, known as the father of modern magic. He was the guy that Houdini took his name from, added an I to the end of, of Houdin. And uh, his quote was, um, a magician is an actor playing the part of a magician, uh, which is kind of an interesting concept, you know, so obviously you're not a real magician, but you're, you're playing the part. Um, and so I think everything from being a you know, magician to um, an out-and-out actor, but certainly being a comedian, you are an actor of some sort. And so that getting on a stage is, is kind of like a, a pressure valve, really. You know, through that shyness, you've kind of bottled things up, but then you get on stage and go, look at me, you know, even if it's not the real you, you know? Um, well, it's very, that's very interesting, because uh, I, I remember Billy Crystal saying about Robin Williams that he needed those extra little hugs that you can only get from strangers. Do you, you recognise that kind of thing? Because both being performers, there is that strange thing of that neediness or that show-off gene, if you like. Do you think yeah, you always had that? Yeah, I remember talking to a performer who um, ended up being a, uh, a TV producer um, and, you know, he'd been a, a, a kind of comedy magician for many, many years. And it said, um, I said, do you miss it? You know, do you miss being on stage? He went, he said, I kind of miss being in the spotlight, but I've replaced that with love for my family. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's that's interesting, you know. So maybe uh, it's a sense that people who become performers, uh, there might be something missing in their emotional life beforehand. You know, not necessarily uh, uh, um, all the time, but perhaps early on, that might be a trigger of some sort. Also, an interesting thing I found with, uh, particularly with magicians, they tend to be only children. The vast majority are, are only children, uh, and I think. Part of that is it's a you know a thing you can practice by yourself, um, but also you've got a lot of time on your hands when you're not uh, interacting with your siblings. Uh, so it's kind of a hobby, you know, from that point of view. But it's also a way of reaching out, you know, of making yourself interesting uh, to other people socially. Um, and that's why so many magicians are, you know, socially uh, inadequate in other ways. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, no, no, it's interesting because you, you've combined the, the magic and, and the comedy and, and that laugh, as we know, is a drug. I mean, that which also goes over into acceptance and, uh, and that's really hard to replace with anything else. And you said about um, the, the person who said, no, I've replaced it with the love of the family. But I wonder if it is possible to replace that because it is such a high, isn't it? It is, and it's it's been strange, you know, particularly the past kind of two years, for obvious reasons. You know, um, a lot of performers, particularly magicians, have turned to uh, doing shows on Zoom, um, and you know, um, not so many comedians. And you go, well, there's a reason for that. You know, with, with the magic trick, you can kind of do the trick, and it'll come across, and you see the people's faces at the far end. Uh, but with a comedian, you need, you need to hear a, a room full of people laugh at once, you know, and the, the problem, obviously, with something like Zoom, you hear people one at a time, or, um, you know, you, you kind of... I mean, there was an interesting thing where someone started doing um, uh, shows live again after doing Zoom, and they said the problem with Zoom is you can't hear the laughter coming through apart from one person at a time, but live, um, you can hear it, but they're all wearing masks in the audience, so you can't see who's actually <laughs> <laughs> the noise, you know. Well, I, I think, well, I, as has just about every comedian we know, and but also every because I obviously do a lot of conferences now, and I've done a, a, a load of virtual conferences, and it's really difficult. And everybody's saying this is the future, 
And I think, well, it's not going to be the future if you want to actually connect with people properly. Because, sure. you know, I mean, we're working on Zoom. We know each other well, so it's slightly easier. But I think that people are, that need other people around them. And as you said, for a creative atmosphere to, to thrive and for comedy to thrive, you need other people there to bounce off, if you like. Yeah. I remember years and years ago, I did that. This is kind of early days of the internet, really. But I did a, uh, a corporate gig in the south of France for, uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but they basically were launching a brand new uh, video conferencing thing, which was a real novelty at that time. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting that they brought people from all over the world to have a conference about how good their video conferencing products were. <laughs> <laughs> because they knew it wouldn't work over the air, you know. It's uh, uh, yeah, you've got you got to be in the same room as people, you know. Um, it's uh, it's this human interaction, you know. It, it's three. It can't be seen sort of in three D, basically. I mean, obviously, now we have to do an element of it. Is there anything from all the years you've done so many television shows or, or over the years, of all the years, of something that our listeners can take away about? If you have to make it work over a Zoom or over a television, what would you say are the intrinsic things you have to remember? No idea. That's <laughs> <laughs> why well, don't do it. Um, and I think it's, um, I think it's just use your imagination and imagine that they are in the same room. So whoever you're talking to, you know, um, uh, don't treat it as though it is a, the, you know, distant, basically. You know, d d pretend they're there. Um, and, and also um, check your body language, you know, because if you're if you're meeting someone face to face, you're using your whole body to talk, you know. Uh, whereas actually, when you can only see someone's head and shoulders on screen, it makes a difference. But actually, if you keep your body moving, kind of subconsciously, um, there's a lot more kind of uh, communication via that. It's you know just subtle little things. That's really interesting. That, that actually, I think that's a really good point, which I'd like to actually go into because that's what the Humorology Project is all about, is tips that people can take away as well. And I think the idea that they can only see this much, so I'm only going to actually act with this much, is an anathema because really, just when you said that, I, I thought, yeah, that's what good people do, is they are animated with the rest of their body, which actually helps in the communication, because even if people can't see it, it animates the rest, the bits they can see. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was interesting, uh, many, many years ago, I did the um, Chris Miles show on Radio 1 a few times, and uh, uh, he it was a complete surprise to me, because I prepared a few tricks to sort of, you know, sit there and, and do on the radio, which is a challenge enough in itself. <laughs> um, but um, when I got there, it turns out uh, he used to stand up in the studio on the radio. Uh, and I've heard since then that a lot more presenters do that on the radio, because they think it gives it more energy. Because they're, they're, they're stood up, uh, they're, they're more animated when they're talking, because they can be, they're, they're, their arse is not plonked on a seat. Uh, so they're kind of moving around a little bit, and it just gives, it comes through just on the the, um, the audio, you know. Um, it, it just gives it more, uh, more vim, basically. You've brought humour and magic to some extraordinary places. I mean, but such as war zones, entertaining the British, US and UN forces. Do you think that humour is important? <laughs> Say that again. So basically, a deterrent, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> uh, also caused a few wars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
do you think that humour is important with dealing with traumatic situations can be a salve, if you like? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, um, you know, it, it can certainly diffuse a situation, you know, if, if some, someone can't stay too angry for too long, if, if you make them laugh, you know. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of a, I think I mentioned before, the, it's a pressure valve, basically, you know. Uh, I think that's why a sense of humour exists in human beings, really, is is to to get you through things, you know. Uh, when something is, is, is traumatic, uh, if, if you can kind of laugh about it, it's, it's letting off steam, almost literally, you know. I, I love that, the, the, the pressure valves, because actually in psychological terms, I talk about it being a state change that uh, you can actually get to people if you change their state. Now, one way you could you could make them angry, but it's much nicer when you make them laugh and they actually have a state change. Then they're going to be more receptive to information. And so that's really uh, uh, one of the, the biggest things that underlies the whole humorology, humorology project yeah is that it's so much more than just getting a cheap laugh, which I know you and I love to do, but it, it's about, <laughs> but it's about uh, putting people in a state of good humour, you know, lightness, changing their attitude so that they, they are more receptive things, so people can learn better, see people can um, learn to cope. Uh, do you think that actually humour aids in resilience generally? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, if you know, hence the phrase, you know, he laughed it off. You know, oh. so it, it's it's kind of interesting that um, you know, and again, there's a parallel with a magic situation in that it's misdirection. You know, if, if if you're concentrating on something and your attention gets deflected by humor or by a trick or whatever it is, you know, that is you know the, the term misdirection. You've directed someone away from the oncoming. You know. I, I, I love that. And uh, that's that's going to end up in the book. You know, he laughed it off. You know, I'll pretend I said it, obviously. <laughs> well, you often do. <laughs> Let's face it. Yeah, let's face it. So what makes you laugh, Paul? I think aside from obvious, you know, uh, comedians and, uh, you know, uh, funny entertainment, I think just kind of little everyday overheard things. I was actually just talking in the pub last night with a couple of mates and uh, one of them came back from the loo and he said, I've just heard the end of a, uh, a, a conversation there and you wonder how it started. And it was a guy walking past another guy who was washing his hands in the basin and he said, are you, are you all right? And the guy said, yeah, it's, it's a difficult sink, this one. <laughs> <laughs> what, what has gone on there? <laughs> it's a difficult sink, this one. And uh, we started talking about kind of overheard lines, whatever. I, I was in a market in, in Brighton a, a while back and I just walked past was quite a young couple in, in their 20s. And I just heard the end of her sentence and she said, uh, she said and that's why I was never allowed to play the euphonium. <laughs> and I, I, I very nearly kind of went back and said, I'm really sorry to eavesdrop, but what, how did that start, that conversation? <laughs> you know, it, it was the phrase, wasn't allowed to, that made it funny. I don't know. So, so you know, stuff like that makes me laugh. I like situational stuff. And I think, um, you know, not, not situation comedies, but situational comedy. Uh, and I think that's kind of, um, kind of what I try to do on stage, really, with the magic. And so the humour comes not so much from jokes, 
per se. Uh, it's more the situation, getting someone up from the audience and what happens to them and, and their involvement. So you're, you're actually creating a little sketch. So it's partly improvised, you know, mainly scripted, uh, but you're creating a funny situation rather than telling a joke, you know? Well, well, that's why I love your act so much. And, uh, you know, any corporate uh, people out there who want a, a guaranteed wow for their corporate event should be booking you because you so much of the act is actually about dealing with the situation and making it funny. And uh, you and I both spent many years at the comedy store Think, what's the best heckle you've had and and how did you deal with that situationally? Um, I think my my favourite heckle was just the weirdest one. Uh, well, it was a little kind of sequence. Uh, I was doing a show in, uh, in Edinburgh, uh, doing a, a kind of one-man thing there. And there's a, there's a thing that I usually finish the act on, which is where I stand a pint of beer, pour a pint of beer and stand it inside a pool triangle, um, you know, the frame, uh, with a dog lead attached to it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there, there are lots of gangs about that. Um, and uh, then I spin it round in a vertical circle and then a horizontal circle around my head uh, for no real reason, really. <laughs> Just, you know, it's, it's gloriously pointless um, as well as dangerous. And uh, I, I, you know, at the end, someone kind of lifts it off to prove it's not stuck. I down the pine. Thanks very much. Good night. But I was kind of doing this one time, and earlier in the show, um, some guy had, had just shouted some drunken Scottish nonsense. You couldn't kind of make head in a tail of what he was saying. So you, you do a, a standard put down line about, you know, um, are, you, are you just saying all the words you know or whatever? <laughs> um, uh, then someone later um, shouted out, out in the middle of nowhere, I like Flipper. And I wasn't talking about anything to do with dolphins or just, just you know, complete, you know, uh, from nowhere. So I kind of got, you know, did a line about it, the sort of surreality of this thing. Then I got to do in the triangle, uh, and this person on the other side, um, I, I said it's about centrifugal force. And uh, this guy shouted out, it's not centrifugal force, it's centripetal force. And technically, he's right, you know. So I was suddenly in this situation where I realised I've got, you know, facing me, I've got like, you know, that uh, diagram of the, the ascent of man where you've got the kind of <laughs> the ape at one end of the man. And I've got the ascent of hecklers here. I've basically got <laughs> Neanderthal at one end, uh, like that. I've got this, I like Flipper, it's somewhere in the middle, uh, just weird. And then I've got the physicist at the far end. <laughs> 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 and then I'm just kind of corpsing, you know, myself on stage. I just, you know, the, the audience made me laugh as a, as a whole. It was just, and the spacing of them was just right, you know. It's funny. We had Joe Brand, uh, who you know well as uh, as well, on the show, and she actually said, uh, especially uh, for women, but generally, I think this is true, to have some heckles in their toolbox, you know, at the time, because it might become useful. And she always used to uh, use them. Um, do you think that's a, a good idea generally? Because in life. People are going to, in offices or at workplaces, be bullied. 
So do you think it's a good idea for people actually to take away and go, here's a couple of zingers that I can go back with? I think particularly if it's something that's been pointed out is perhaps some kind of physical feature that someone's had to go at before. If it's happened several times in their life, then obviously they're going to come up with a a retort for that or or it would be useful to have one. So if someone thinks they've been a a smart ass by saying something about you having a big nose or whatever it might be, uh, then if you've got, you know, uh, a, a comeback to that, then yeah that's that's going to be useful because it just it disarms the attack then you know it makes them look like the the idiot rather than you you know um but yeah it's um i I used to kind of rely on uh, a lot of you know stock one-liners or whatever but as you do it you know for many many years you perhaps come out with something spontaneously think oh that's good remember that one and then they you know add it to the arsenal basically you know but well but isn't heckling really about i mean because i think everyone starts with the stock one-liners which they they store up but really a, a heckle put down is at its funniest when it's timed right and it just comes off the, the, the top of your head. And that's yeah. really the matrix, as I call it, when you're in that everything slows down and you have that time like a great sports person. When great comedians are on stage, that's really what happens, isn't it? You hear the heckle and then you go, I've got the perfect line and everything works in that matrix style. I think a lot of it is to do with how often you're performing, basically, because, you know, if you're working every night and sometimes two, three gigs a night, you know, yeah. uh, you can be, uh, you get match fit, you know, it's like anything else, you know, you're doing it regular. Um, so the, the actual, uh, the, line, the lines you usually do are coming out like clockwork. So your mind behind that has got time to think about improvisation, you know, so to add to it. So you can on automatic pilot for the main part of the act, um, and then your, your, your kind of brain is uh, on a on a different level dealing with the uh, uh, the kind of nuances, you know. Yeah, I think you're right. Do you think everyone is potentially funny or is it a, a gift given from God? <laughs> <laughs> and I know how you feel about that. <laughs> um, I think... Um, I don't think everybody is funny, no. Uh, I think some people have been very lucky um, to uh, to be given a, a, a natural leaning towards it, but it's also something that can definitely have been developed. Um, you know, so, I mean, there are certain comedians who you think, you can't imagine them at school being the funny guy, you know, the, the, the class clown, uh, but what they've done, they, they've sat at the back of the class, looked at other people who've got laughs for doing stuff and think, right, that's the way it works. And so they, they approach it more like a, you know, a scientific equation, if you will, um, and go, right, so if I do that and in answer to that and time it that way, that's what makes people laugh. And so they learn it you know, mechanically, uh, if, if you will. Uh, but I think some people who, who don't need to think about it at all, you know, um, I mean, it was interesting to, to hear that um, Alan Davis years ago said that he never writes anything down. And so I thought it's really unusual for a comedian, because as you know, in a, a dressing room, there's normally people kind of like either making notes on the performance they've just done because a line didn't work or they came up with a new one or whatever, or they're structuring a show or, or a, a 20 minute routine uh, overall. So that make, I'm personally, I, I do bullet points, you know, I'll do a, a list of tricks and then just put a couple of little notes of new lines next to each and all the rest of it. But a lot of people will write it out word for word, rehearse it. But I thought it's very unusual to find someone who who doesn't write anything down 
um, at all and, and t- totally relies on memory. They come up with it and store it in the memory, you know. Um, but everybody's brain is different, though, isn't it, Re- really? Yeah. Because um, the, my good friend uh, Scott Quinnell, the rugby player who we, we wrote the book, yeah, Leader on the Pitch, together, he is one of the funniest after-dinner speakers you will ever see. And until Scott was 36, he was dyslexic. So he's never written anything down. And yet he's hilariously funny on stage. And so some people's brains can store things in a different way. So, you know, it's about understanding the way you remember stuff. And with Alan, who we both know, I think um, he's very physical, having a drama background. And he actually may be remembering, I don't know this kind of things, but kinesthetically. You know, when I do this, the 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 lines come. Uh, so it could. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I noticed the, the complete opposite with um, a classic old timer uh, Ken Dodd. And if you look at photographs of Ken Dodd backstage or, or on stage, uh, if you see his hands, they're covered in writing. Uh, so even after doing it for you know centuries, uh, basically you know he, um, I, I last worked with him in uh, one of his last shows actually in uh, 2017 um, at the uh, Blackpool Magicians Con- uh, Convention, and uh, so I was on stage with him and all on, on his hands just written up there or there up the wrist on the cuff or rest of it just little notes. And you think if you need to do that after that many years, but then again he did do like five hour shows. <laughs> yes, he did. Well, I I remember. That uh, that uh, you were presented with the Sir Ken Dodd Award for comedy by uh, Doddy himself, were you not? It was that occasion. That was yeah. Oh, it was, was it? Uh, yeah. It, well, the, the story is that the um, the biggest magic convention in the world is, is in Blackpool every February, uh, and you get uh, four thousand magicians attending there for, from all over the world. Uh, and in fact, I'm doing it again. I'm, I remember seeing the show again. Uh, they do a big gala show in the Opera House there. Um, I'm doing it in a couple of weeks' time. And on this occasion, they just let me know just before the show uh, that I'd won, won this Ken Dodd Comedy Award. And, uh, and he, Doddy, uh, was honorary uh, life president of the uh, Blackpool Magicians Club. So every year he'd come and do a, a little bit. And by his standards, a little bit. Um, because, <laughs> yes. he, he literally did like it was like something like 50 odd years in a row maybe 60 years in a row he did this this show and he uh, this year can can you can you keep it tight so the show was kind of running you know three and a half hours anyway and you know, keep it tight and just do five minutes would be great you know and he'd always do 45 you know and uh, this was no exception so the way they decided to do it was I, I was seeing the show but after um, after the interval he was going to come uh, come on and present at the was five different awards and mine was the last one uh the comedy one and so uh it's launched into routine and all the rest of it and there's a table with the five awards uh alongside and we're stood uh, behind the, uh, the back cloth and he's just going on and on and on as, as usual and his partner uh is uh traveling with him and he became his wife just before he died and she's stamping on the stage just behind the curtain going ken come on ken come on like this and uh, and he just carried on and on. So eventually, uh, the stage manager and a stagehand walked on and got hold of the table and marched it to the centre stage and put it next to him, uh, centre. So yeah, uh, all right, take a hint. Uh, so he's uh, so he carries on and on and on and again, and eventually gets round to presenting the awards. 
but then stops halfway through and launches into another routine. So by the end of it, there's the one award left uh, for me on the table, but he's going on, she's stamping away. The stage manager walks on again with the, the stage hand. He gets the, the award, puts it in Ken's uh, hand, uh, and then takes the table off, you know, as a hint to, to, to get on with it. So the Ken then puts it down on the floor, um, <laughs> carries on again. The stage manager comes back on, picks it up off the floor, puts it back in his hand. He went, I can bend over, you know. So, um, so eventually he gets around to it, he announces me, and I go on, and we have a bit of uh, backwards and forwards. And, uh, and then he said, uh, so can you sing, young man? And I went, no, I really, and as you know, I can't, I really can't sing. So, well, I'm sure the ladies and gentlemen will help you out. Come, happiness. So I have to, so I'm keeping the microphone as far away from my mouth as I can. I've got 4,000 bloody magicians in front of me. Yeah. Uh, so get through all this. And so at the end, I, I go, ladies and gentlemen, the legend, uh, Sir Ken Dodd. And as, as he's taking his bow, he goes, he went, can you pick me tickling sticks up? I can't bend over. <laughs> <laughs> My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And it was just a lovely memory. You know, it wasn't long after that he passed away, actually, after that. So just to be in one of his favourite theatres in his favourite town, um, you know, uh, that, that was a real a real joy. Um, well, but that's really that, you know, that you get from experience. But, you know, it's lovely to pass on these things. I mean, we've lost a lot of uh, great com comedians, unfortunately, recently. We've obviously Doddy, we've lost Sean Locke, we've lost Barry Cryer. Bobby Ball. Bobby Ball, yeah. You know, we've worked with a lot of these people and we've seen, what do you think that special source is that made them shine so bright? 
Um, I think it's slightly different in um, each uh, situation, but I think probably one thing they've got in common is, is people relate to them. Um, it's it's about, uh, I remember Harry Hill once saying, before he was a name, we, we I got him a gig in the Falkland Islands. He didn't thank me for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember the, the penguins uh, did. I used to do a lot of kind of military tours and stuff. Uh, uh, the, um, it used to be, you know, like the old Ensa thing, which people yeah. used to joke stood for every night something awful. Um, and then uh, we renamed it as uh, CSE, which was Combined Services Entertainment, uh, or as we renamed it, um, uh, Curry Served Endlessly. Because uh, in, in the Army, if they have a special occasion, they always have a curry, and that's an exciting thing. So when there's a show there, that's a, so you're doing a 14-night tour, Every night is curry night, you know, and you're sharing a pool cabin with five musicians. It's not, uh, <laughs> not great. But anyway, uh, by the by, um, but yeah, I got uh, got Harry Hill this gig. I just remember at the end of this tour in the Falklands, he just went, he said, you know, Paulie, I, I think I'm going to resign my commission. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, on, on that tour, I remember him saying, because we, you know, that late night sort of drunken way you're analysing comedy, a bit like this, but late night and drunken. Um, it, it's um, his, his kind of definition was what, what people were looking for was uh, empathy and mischief. And I thought, yeah, that's that's quite a good definition. Um, and uh, I was just talking about Bobby Ball last night, actually, and said, what the thing, people forget how big Cannon and Ball were, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, in the 80s, I mean, just absolutely massive. I saw them at um, Warrington Arena. And I, I don't know how many seats, like 10,000, 12,000 seats or something. And I've never known such love come from an audience as they walked on. It was just, that's the only way you could describe it, you know. And so uh, what you had there was the, you know, the serious Tommy Cannon telling off this naughty little boy character, uh, but never getting really angry with him. And at the end, but, you know, Bobby Ball falls asleep and Tommy carries him off. And, and uh, after singing, what was it? Uh, is it Wind Beneath My Wings or And He's My Brother? Something like that. Um, and, and you go, yeah, that's lovely. Because it, it, what, what you've got there is that whole empathy and mischief. There are a couple of northern lads that have made good, you know, straight out of the factory into the working men's clubs. And then all of a sudden they're superstars on TV. Um, but they've still got that mischief and still pulling the rug on authority, you know. Um, I think that's, um, so I think, you know, what all the performers we mentioned um, they've got is that people relate to them. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, and a particular, you know, Barry Cry is a really unique one. It was so sad to hear about him um, last week. Um, he's, there aren't many people who are as famous as a, for being a writer as a performer, you know? Mm. Um, and looking at the social media when he passed away, uh, I mean, literally no one had a bad word to, to say about it. And there were legion stories about him taking an interest with people, you know, the number of people who said, oh, I met him once, he was outside having a fag outside this theatre or whatever, and I said, thank you for the jokes or thank you for the entertainment. He said, no, thank you for saying so, that means a lot. Yeah, I, I, I love the fact that, the, that empathy and mischief are put together, but without the former... You, you you really can't do the latter, can you? You have to um, get that rapport, first of all, that understanding for people to trust you enough to tease, I suppose. And it's, isn't that what it's about? And, and I mean, for our listeners, because not everybody's going to be a comedian, obviously, but actually, I one of the things I say to people when I'm training groups of people is that it, without rapport, you have nothing. Mm. So... You can't, you know, you can sound like a bully 
if you are just going and, you know, start talking about somebody's nose or whatever. But if you've got enough rapport with them and you do it in the right way, you can yeah. tease, you can play. And I suppose that's really the, the essence of it is doing that on a grand scale is teasing and playing yeah. on that level. Yeah. I think the audience have to have um, confidence in you. And a, and a lot of that is, is put across before you even start speaking, really. You know, it's the way, the way you stagecraft, the way you walk on. I mean, in the early days, I look back on some old videos and things, I'm kind of sprinting on and straight into a line of rest of it. I mean, you just, you just slow, slow down a bit, you know. And now it's the opposite. I go, Christ, speed up a bit. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the whole thing is the audience need to, need to know that they're in safe hands, you know. Um, and, and going back to the kind of heckle line or whatever, I've seen quite a few comics deal with the heckle really well by not uh, responding to it instantly. Yeah. Uh, they're usually the type to think of a response, but by just kind of pausing and looking at the, the offender uh, or whatever, you're letting them know that that hasn't bothered you. You know, it's like, you know, really? I mean, um, comedian called Michael Smiley used to kind of treat him. Yeah. He, was, he was quite an aggressive comedian, you know, quite, quite edgy subject matter. Um, but when someone heckled in, he didn't actually respond other than visually. He just kind of, someone would shout something, and he just basically looked their way, put their, and the look sort of said, you yeah, know, really? You know, you, you kind of want to mess with it? And then he'd just carry on. Uh, and it was a, a surprisingly effective way of dealing with it. It was like having a, a strict teacher kind of giving a, that look of disapproval, you know. And it's so, funny, I was about to mention teachers exactly yeah. at that point, because I think it's the same thing. And the analogy I always give is remember when you were at school and you would test the teacher if you had a supply teacher come in you would always test them and you knew the ones who had the presence yeah, who absolutely. could just stand there and go it's your own time you're wasting yeah. you know I, used to, um, I went to a, um, a grammar school uh, which was quite strict it was like a sort of poor man's public school really um, and uh, you know all, all boys uh, it's another reason I've ended up as a bloody magician, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was, uh, we had a, a deputy head teacher. I mean, this place was founded in 1492 uh, and still had half the same teachers as well when it opened, I think. And um, the, the deputy head was called Wally Evans and he was uh, an ex-sergeant major. And he was very much like the character of um, um, a, a, Ain't Half Hartman, Winsor Davis's character in that. And, uh, and he you know, kind of terrified us. And on the last day in the sixth form, we were all turning sort of 18 at that point. And we went out and got blind drunk at lunchtime on the final day. Um, and we came back in and half trashed the, uh, the common room, whatever. And we were walking back out the school for the final time. And he just walked out because uh, he'd, he'd kind of known about the, the drinking thing and the rest of it. And he just walked out. Out and kind of stood there and gave us a look, and we were instantly eleven years old again, just starting at school and no trouble. We, we could have just told him to piss off at that point, you know, it was the last day. But he just had that presence, you know, um, and uh, and a, and a big stick. Yes, no, but actually, that's really useful for anybody listening who wants to take anything away. Is that that actually just standing there looking at somebody and thinking about how the teachers did it is a really good lesson to how to do it. Now, we've probably between us seen thousands and thousands of open spots over the years and open spots for our listeners are people who trying out their comedy for the first time. Mm. And you can pretty much tell within 
five seconds if they're going to last, can't you? Because yeah. it's how they present themselves. Because yeah. the audience makes its mind up, you know, yeah. even if it's only to the level of, is uh, am I going to watch some more? But they once they've made their mind up, it's very hard to sway them, which is funny that I was talking um, on the show with, uh, somebody about Alan Davis's uh, early routines where he would pretend not to know what he was doing, which yeah. was dangerous, but yeah, then he would brilliantly switch it up. Yeah. Now, they, I mean, audiences um, smell blood very quickly, you know, and it's uh, particularly, uh, particularly in the comedy club situation, you know. Um, it's slightly different if you go into a theatre to watch a variety show or whatever, because they know by the virtue of the fact you've been booked that you're a professional actor or, or whatever. But in the comedy clubs, um, there's a lot of people actually... Um, going for the first time quite often. I mean, it's the sort of thing that uh, has become the new office party, you know, get office Christmas pie, where should we go? The comedy store, whatever. Um, so there'll be quite a few newbies there. Um, and they think that the comedy circuit is all about heckling and aggression and, you know, the comics are allowed to say anything, therefore you're allowed to shout anything back to them and all the rest of it. So that a lot of the audience are actually, you know, wanting some, some sparring, basically. Um, and so the, the way to deflect that is by being that, you know, uh, looking like an old hand in, in a lot of respects, you know. Is it important to be able to laugh at yourself? Um, very, I think, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've lost count of the number of shows I've done uh, at corporate events or whatever where, you know, I've got to follow uh, the MD of the company who's full of their self-importance and, and all the rest of it and, and has no, you know, thinks they've got a sense of humour but really doesn't. Uh, and it's it's uphill for me after that, you know, because it, it's you would think you know, go and be funny after that, it'd be an easy job, but it's, it's so flat afterwards because, you know, uh, they can get away with not being entertaining, so they, they do and make the most <laughs> of that position, you know. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think... You know, the, the favourite people I've seen outside of show business doing public speaking of some sort or another are the ones that do have, you know, a sense of the ridiculousness of the situation or, uh, you know, the ability to take the mickey out themselves. I think it's a, a very amiable trait in people, you know. Um, but, but, you know, sometimes in business, and, we're, and a lot of our listeners, listeners are in business and uh, things, sometimes they, uh, people in business think that it takes away their gravitas or something where I, as I think, and that's why I ask, you know, esteemed guests who understand it, it adds to their gravitas to be able to actually see yourself not too seriously. Uh, yeah. I think adds to it rather than takes it away. Don't you agree? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, I think it actually shows, uh, um, you know, subtly shows a confidence because, you know, if you are, uh, but also kind of, um, it shows that you've got the the nows to to realise it yourself as well. You know, you're kind of not not just looking out of the world. You're looking at your position in it, um, and so to be able to take the mickey out yourself in some form or another shows that you're actually you know happy in your skin. Really, you know, you've got an inner confidence, and that's obviously a good business trait. You know, talking about business, if I asked you to write a business case for humour, um, i.e., why humour should be valued in business, what would you include in it? Um, I just think that um, 
you know, having uh, demonstrating a sense of humor is obviously a good trait in anyone, but particularly in business where it shows that you're not taking yourself too seriously and that you're not putting on too much of an act. Uh, which sounds counterintuitive because you would think if someone who's doing you know, something humorous is doing an act. But actually, if you don't include any humor, it, it shows that you're doing a hard sell, I think, of whatever it is you're selling. Uh, you might be trying a little bit too hard. Um, so uh, I think it just subtly indicates by involving a little bit of humor in there that you are confident in the product, whatever it is that you you're selling and therefore can, can afford to be a bit, you know, uh, jovial about it, just mess around it. Um, it sounds a bit odd that, but I think. No, I, I think that people, well, from a psychological perspective, I think people buy confidence, you know, mm. and we were just talking about people on stage, you know, if they're confident, they're, they're more likely to get laughs. Then I think the same in business. If you're confident about what you're presenting and uh, humour being the ultimate show of confidence, um, then people are more likely to interact with you and want to spend more time with you and yeah. your product. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's no great coincidence that when people go on dating apps or whatever, you know, quite often they'll put GSOH, good sense of humour or whatever, which normally is an indicator that they don't have one, but that's by the way. But what it does show is that um, it's like bubbly. You know, if someone puts bubbly, what they actually mean is really bloody irritating, you know. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, but it's, um, you know, it, uh, it shows that it's a valued trait in human beings. So, you know, a valued trait in a relationship, uh, like a sense of humour, is obviously going to be uh, equally valid in business, you know. So it's, it's why people like other people. And if you like someone, you're more likely to buy from them, you know. Yeah, it is as simple as that, isn't it? Really, you 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 want to be around people who make you feel good. Yeah. So well, you, therefore, not many people say I've got a really close friend who's really dry, absolutely no sense of humour. You know, yeah. um, you'd uh, love him. Whereas someone can be, you know, thick as two short planks and and very irritating, but oh, he ain't half a laugh. You know, and therefore yeah. a friend. Um, so. Wait. But isn't it interesting, the delusion that everybody thinks they've got a good sense of humour? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've had a couple of instances recently on, on Facebook where I've been kind of just, you know, as you know, my late night hobby is just arguing with strangers on Facebook. Um, but, yeah. um, but there's been a couple of ones where I've just put something sarcastic and the person's come back and, and, and misunderstood it. So you go, no, that, that was a joke, you know. I think, oh, well... I, I, it's not funny, and I have an excellent sense of humour. If you say that, you, you know, it's one against the other, really, doesn't it? You know? Yes, I think if you ask anyone, uh, <laughs> they will tell you. Just... My pet peeves is that when, when people say um, a joke, or particularly a comedian, um, they're not funny. And you go, well, they're incredibly successful as a comedian, Right, so they obviously are funny to a lot of people, and there's that that um, weird kind of misunderstanding that something is either funny or not. You go, well, it's funny to some people. It's funny in context. It's not funny out of context, and you don't find it funny. That doesn't mean it's not funny as such. You know, um, well, we we have been on a lot of um, bills at comedy clubs over the years, and there are comedians uh, who divide the audience. Oh, yeah. You know. 
half of them think they are brilliant and, and half of them just don't get it at all. And, sure. and sometimes, and, you know, God rest his soul, for the early part of his career, Sean Locke, who um, all the comedians <laughs> thought was hilarious, it sometimes used to go wide of the mark with a whole section of the audience. Oh, yeah. I, I remember walking in the comedy store one night, so as you know, quite a few of us used to go there when we weren't working there, just late night, we did a gig somewhere else, so pop in for the, the midnight show. And uh, I think back, you used to do you know, two shows a night, and the the second one started at midnight, so you come out there yeah. in the morning. Um, and um, so, yeah, the Friday crowd, quite often you'd get people who'd come from the office not had anything to eat, gone out drinking, and then to, to round the evening off, go to the midnight show at the comedy store. So yeah, blind drunk. I remember walking in one night and Sean Ock was on stage and there was a big group of city suits in there. Um, and it was, it was literally 50-50 where half of them were heckling him and the other half were fast asleep. <laughs> just, and it was the most amazing sight but uh, but yeah Sean always kind of trod his own path you know he kind of just he, he knew what he wanted to do and he, he did it you know fantastically um, I shared a flat with him and uh, and Dave Johns in Edinburgh in in uh, 97 which was which was fun and they, they were kind of a, a weird pairing because Sean very kind of surreal um, you know sort of style um, quite dark and all the rest of it but was actually not a health fanatic, but used to eat very, very healthily and, and go jogging every day and all the rest of it, which is not what comics do at Edinburgh, really, or didn't back then. Um, and then in contrast to that, you had Dave Johns, who was just basically boiling gallons of, of, of uh, potatoes uh, every day. And uh, they used to take the mickey out of each other. And, uh, you know, what, more, more potatoes, Dave. Yeah. I like potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> What are what are the strangest heckles? Yeah, but um, yeah, it was happy days. I'm just just kind of remembering um, that time. I mean, a measure of Sean actually was we, we did a show. I put on a charity show at the Palladium, London Palladium, uh, back about 2011, I think something like that. And uh, we had, I mean, that was a hell of a bill. We had um, Dar O'Brien, Lee Mack, Dave Spikey, Sean Rock, um, and. What was really, really nice about that, and considering that bill and all the rest of it, I was emceeing it, uh, so it was a, a charity fundraiser thing. And at the end, we have a walk down, everybody takes a curtain call, you know, does a bow. And I brought everybody back on stage one at a time. And then Sean just grabbed the microphone off me uh, and went, ladies and gentlemen, let's see it for Paul. He put all this thing together, kind of thing. I just thought, oh, lovely. You know, really, considering his style can be, you know, quite cutting. And Acerbic. Quite, quite, yeah, quite edgy, you know. Um, and, yeah, just actually just really lovely thing to do, you know. Um, uh, it was a lovely man, sadly missed. We've come to the part of the show, Paul, that we like to call Quick Fire Questions. Quick Fire Questions! Who's the funniest business person you've met? Um... I, I don't really recall anybody sort of business-wise that sort of... Um, they've made me laugh for the wrong reasons sometimes, you know. And I, I quite enjoyed um, some of the corporate gigs I've done where um, the, the MD or whoever is, is, how do you want to be introduced or whatever, and then they entirely ignore what you've said. 
um, and, uh, and they usually name to start the sentence. What we go, uh, uh, we've got the cabaret now. Uh, he's called Paul Zenon, and uh, he's going to be coming up. And you can see the realization in their eyes after that point. Like, what's the end of the sentence going to be? Because <laughs> use your name. So yeah, and he, uh, he's, he's he's going to be coming on stage uh, right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think you and I once had a, a conversation about the funniest business person we'd met about a certain agent uh, uh, of oh, our... Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, uh, who's, who now manages Darren Brown, that one. Yes. Yes, Michael Vine, yeah. And uh, yeah, my, my, yeah, he's a, he's a funny bugger. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my, Michael used to be a, a comedy magic act himself many, many years ago, uh, and somewhere... There's a videotape out there of it, which I want to see. Um, but uh, yeah, who knows where? But yeah, my, my, I mean, just to, to say that he's got a dry sense of humour, I think is a little bit understated, isn't it? Is um, you know, um, I remember. Um, I mean, one of his favourite things is just kind of uh, chatting to someone at the bar or whatever. As he walked out, uh, walked away, he realises his trousers around his ankles and it's like you know not exactly subtle it's not exactly you know it's an intellectual gag but it, it, it is very funny to witness it what film makes you laugh i have to say probably back to the old um, you know black and white slapstick stuff really i mean i still i still watch lauren hardy quite regularly you know i'm i'm not a man of this century really um Brilliant. But, um, but no I, I kind of i saw a lovely thing the other day actually which was a couple of lauren hardy kind of dance routine sketch things but set to david bowie um, and just perfect timing, you know, look it up on YouTube, but the, um, Rebel Rebel by Bowie and then, then doing a dance to it. And it's just, it's just brilliant. Taking a shift to the other side, we always do this is we go the other way and say, what's not funny? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's a difficult one. I, I, I think I already said, you know, uh, when people say something's not funny, um, they're, they're generally, you know, uh, confusing their opinion with facts, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 there's certain things I don't find funny, uh, such as um, banter. Um, I, it's not so much the idea of banter, which is like, it's what everybody does, is what we do, you know, taking the piss out of each other. Um, but it's, it's recognising it as banter and calling it banter, or even worse, bants. Uh, <laughs> if there's a, ever a bigger turn, off, again, that, you can tell I spend a certain amount of time on dating apps. Uh, but, you, you know, you kind of, with, together with GSOH, must have good bants. Oh! Swipe left. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the idea that you're somehow good at it um, when, when again, that shows that you're not. It's it's kind of a um, yeah. It's it's a real you know uh, red light, isn't it? Yeah. Oh God, the word bants just made me wince. It just <laughs> yeah, had exactly. a visceral effect on me. To be honest with you, everything. Um, you've uh, I think done hundreds now of episodes of Countdown as as a guest in Dictionary Corner. What word makes you laugh? Uh, well, obviously on Countdown, any rude one, you know, <laughs> Rachel's face as it appears letter by letter, you know, is a, uh, have a uh, constant V, have a vowel A, uh, constant G. <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah, it's normally just off by one. You just don't quite get there, whatever. But um, I remember um, actually um, what made me laugh was John Cooper Clark being um, a big fan of um, uh, got asked what his favourite word was. 
And it, it was more his accent than anything that did it. He went, if he paused for a moment and went, lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's kind of uh, self-contained the thought process within that answer, isn't it? You know, to... Yeah, yeah. No, brilliant, brilliant. What sound makes you laugh? Mm, well, there's a very specific sound that made me laugh a while back um, where I was in a, um, uh, a pub, strangely, uh, for, <laughs> very rare for me, but um, with a, a female friend of mine and she went to the uh, went to the loo and came back crying, laughing. Uh, and, and so I went and checked it out myself. And what, what she told me was she, she'd gone in there and she closed the door behind her and this voice went, hello? She went, Hello. Nothing happened. So she opened the door again and she closed it. And it turns out it was the hinge on the door. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I went and checked it and it was, it was actually, you know, it, it came out as a word. It was just a squeaky. It was, <laughs> so we just stood there for about half an hour and played with the door. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well that's, that's no defence, to be honest with you, in court. <laughs> Cottaging, I think it's called. <laughs> exactly. Would you rather be considered clever or funny? Uh, I'll take either. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I don't know, I think probably clever. But then again, if someone calls you clever in this context, it, they might be suggesting that you're not funny. Um, is this like saying, you know, um, oh, you think you, know, you say something funny, oh, you think you're being clever, you know? Uh, but I, I don't know. I, think, um, I don't know. Do you need to be clever to be funny? Um, well, I think you probably do, because to, to, to make those connections in your mind, most comedians, I think, are clever, have fast brains that can actually make those comedy connections very quickly. So maybe you need to be, as you say, clever in order to be funny. Yeah, I think, uh, but I suppose it's a bit like the thing about intelligence. Some people, you know, you don't get um, intelligence through education. You're either inherently intelligent or, or not. Um, but I think some people are funny without being clever, but maybe they don't realise it. You know, it might, things like um, malapropisms or, you know, um, or I heard someone a while back sort of said, uh, and I only said this to her and she and, and she literally bit my head off. And you go, well, <laughs> I don't think she did, did she? <laughs> so she was being funny, but she certainly wasn't clever. <laughs> Brilliant. And finally, Paul, Desert Island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? I don't know, because I, I, I don't really do jokes as such. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's tricked with funny bits and the rest of it. But I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of, uh, well, just because recently uh, poor old uh, Barry Cryer sort of passed, you know, um, but one he used, and I think I've heard Arthur Smith use it as well. Uh, so I don't know, probably Barry Cryer wrote it, I would imagine. But it was just a, a very simple uh, short thing. But it, uh, it was a guy uh, going to the doctors and said, um, you know, I've, I've, I don't know what's wrong with me. I've kind of, I feel very kind of run down. I've been shouting at the wife and kids. I've, I've been, you know, I've lost my appetite. I just got no energy and all the rest of it. And um, the doctor said, well, um, you know, you've got to stop masturbating. He said, why is that? He said, because I'm trying to examine you. <laughs> oh, 
brilliant. But you see, what you've proved is that you're full of empathy and mischief. Paul Zenon, <laughs> thank you so much for being our guest on the Humorology Podcast. Thank you. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.